2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Wrights. Wright's. Thank you for listening. Today, how art elevates community. The annual public art festival, Elevate, takes place in a different part of Atlanta each time. And this year's focus is on the historic West End we'll hear about the many diverse online events encompassing themes of hope, activism, and community all through the voice and lens of art. With this being an election year, we'll begin with a timely subject. When you look at the vibrant cover of a new book called The Constitution Decoded, You presume it's meant for children, and that's true. As the publisher recommends, it's for children ages 10 and up. But the book provides so much information with such clarity, I think adult readers will find it equally informative and enjoyable. Katie Kennedy is the author of this guide to the document that shapes our nation. She is with me now via Zoom. Katie Kennedy, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Every word of the U.S. Constitution is included in this volume, yet the content is not intimidating. Please talk about how the book is structured.
1: Sure, we wanted to provide a translation uh, into plain language of the US Constitution so that even relatively young children could understand it. And also, as you mentioned, plenty of adults who need a refresher, plenty of parents who are homeschooling unexpectedly or helping with distance learning and can hide a copy in their drawer and tell their kids things that they just learned an hour before, you know. So we put the text of the Constitution on the left-hand pages uh, and then the translation on the right hand with the hope that people could go back and forth and say, oh, that's what that sentence means. Uh, And phrases that simply can't be translated that, that people need to know, like bill of attainder or ex post facto law or corruption of blood. Uh, we provided a, a glossary, some kind of a definition for those words uh, to try to help people. And then Ben Kirchner did illustrations. and so It's colorful and it's, I think, non-intimidating and kind of fun in that way. The only thing is that Ben is English and George Washington is our host uh, sort of through the book. So I checked the illustrations carefully to make sure he didn't slip some kind of uh, English revenge in there.
2: (laughs) He is not wearing a red coat. So I think Ben was honorable that way. He was. The illustrations, beginning with the cover art, immediately reveal that this is an inclusive depiction of history. Just Looking at the cover, of course, George Washington's in the middle. I see Lincoln, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and uh, Frederick Douglass. This is a very different approach from the very cover. Did you and Ben Kirshner work together as to how the... Book was laid out and which illustrations would be included?
1: No, we really didn't. We had no contact at all, really. Uh, everything went through the editor, and they would ask for clarification on some uh, illustrations. And uh, poor Ben, I, I made him redo a couple of things that weren't quite right, perhaps, to an American eye. I mean, he, he did a beautiful job. I mean, it's a book for a U.S. audience, obviously. It's the U.S. Constitution also to make sure that uh, everything was clear in that regard. But it really was the editor uh, who decided on layout on some of those things.
2: Just flipping through, I see the occasional did you know sections on the left side of the page under the unadulterated (laughs) version that appears of the Constitution. And Here is one with an illustration of Dr. Martin Luther King saying, the last line of the 15th Amendment, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, isn't usually a very controversial line. But massive white resistance to black voting rights led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you are tackling some very complex history in the did-you-know sections, trying to interpret simply. How long did this take you to write, Kitty?
1: We did it very quickly. Uh, We wanted to get the the book out before the election to give people some help with understanding the document itself. We're not trying to make uh, any kind of a partisan argument on, on any sort of issue, but simply to give people the tool to understand the document, to understand the Constitution, to see what it says. You know, People so often say they have a constitutional right to this or that, um, you know, a constitutional right to the last piece of pie or something. And, um, you know, but what does it actually say? So we wanted to get it out quickly. And um, the first draft, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple of months. And I put in so, so, so many sidebars, you know, extra boxes. And the uh, editor pointed out to me it wasn't supposed to be an 800-page book, <laughs> which shocked and distressed me. This is why you have editors. And so we redid it and cleaned it up and made it um much, much uh, smaller, and uh, I think that's less intimidating for people. You have taught college history
2: and American government for 30 years, I read. Why did you decide to create this book for younger students?
1: It became clear that my efforts in teaching American government had not produced uh, widespread constitutional literacy, and uh, there, there were still some questions out there. I had a student once, um, lovely guy, really enjoyed him, Uh, but he asked in class once if the presidential requirement, the qualification to be president of being a natural-born citizen, would that disqualify him from ever being president because his mother had a C-section with him and he was therefore not natural-born. And so we had a good time with that, Uh, but I thought, well, Possibly, it would be good to, you know, to give people the tool to actually understand the document because the language is old and it is hard to go through. And if you tell somebody you're going to spend the afternoon reading the Constitution together, people don't normally jump up and high-five each other and run around the room, you know, howling with glee. It can be intimidating, and uh, we wanted to make it fun and give people a, a colorful book um, with short segments and, um, and small boxes, something that could be used as a reference. Um, or people can simply read through.
2: My most vivid memory of the 2016 Democratic National Convention was when Khazir Khan spoke. The father of the U.S. Army officer killed in action, and the speech that Khazir Khan gave was in response to the anti-Muslim rhetoric that had surrounded the Republican presidential candidate's campaign. And here is this father of a fallen distinguished officer who was born in Pakistan, standing there with his wife, clearly very emotional, and he pulled out his copy of the Constitution a pocket edition that he said he knew inside out and carried with him and i wondered if that moment informed you at all when writing this book
1: that was a very powerful moment as you know a beautiful thing to see someone pull out their constitution and and you know talk about the importance of it to them I, I felt the power of that moment too. It didn't make any specific difference in the writing of the book, although it is very moving to see how um, how much this document means to people and, and how many people do understand, you know, the importance of it the foundational role of it. And some of the, the founding fathers and framers of the constitution after the revolution, when the U.S. was still under the Articles of Confederation, Uh, before the Constitution was written, wrote very poignantly of having risked everything in the revolution, having risked their lives and their their families' futures, uh, having lost comrades in order to have the right to self-government. And then, under the articles, they were failing, and they knew the British were watching, and they knew the British were laughing at them. And after all of the sacrifice and the danger of the revolution, Uh, to to win the right to govern themselves and then not to be able to do it uh, and how painful that was. And so they took this second crack at it with the Constitution um, and knocked it out of the park. But, you know, it's very moving, I think, uh, to read even how they felt about that and how important the document was to them.
2: I was wondering in terms of particular portions of the Constitution that stood out to you as needing special attention in presenting this guide, if you will, to students. Were there any surprises for you or were there any sections that were more challenging than others?
1: Well, the Electoral College was a challenge from the standpoint that the writing in the original document is very long and complex and a lot of passive voices and a lot of nodded sentence structures. And since we wanted to make it um, small bites and not overwhelm people, it was hard to chop that up and still have it be meaningful. Um, It's also a little hard to understand. I think, in general, people understand that the Electoral College means that, you know, you and I, regular people, don't vote for the president or, you know, the candidate we want to be president. We vote for the people who, the electors, who will, in fact, vote for that person. I'm not sure people realize that that right is not guaranteed in the Constitution, um, that a, a popular vote is custom but not required, and that a governor could simply declare that Georgia's votes are go to this candidate and not allow people to vote. Uh, a state legislature could say California's votes go to this candidate, uh, and people are not guaranteed the right uh, even to vote for the electors mm-hmm. who vote for president. So that's, um, I think, a bit of a surprise to some people.
2: I'm looking at pages 42 and 43, and there's a timeline that contains simple illustrations that speak volumes, beginning with the picture of a slave ship in 1619 and ending with a picture of Barack Obama elected president in 2008. Would you talk about explaining that the word slavery wasn't explicitly used in the Constitution until the 13th Amendment, but so much of what was inferred was
1: presumed to be law. Uh, The Constitution, absolutely, in its original form, without amendments, um, before the amendments, talks about slaves and talks about slavery, but does not use that word. I mean, they knew what they meant. There was no question about that. But it doesn't say slavery until the 13th Amendment, which ends it. The document talks about, yes, the three-fifths compromise, where for the House of Representatives, uh, states with more population, a higher population, get more representatives. Which obviously is good for that state. So, slaveholding states wanted to count their slaves in order to get more representatives, but had no intention of giving them the vote or the right to run for office or, or you know, in, enjoying the freedoms uh, that come along with, with that. And uh, non slaveholding states cried foul and said, you, you can't do that. You can't count these people so that you get more, extra votes, so that every white person has you know, a a higher percentage of voting. So they came to a compromise, called the three fifths compromise, and that is that for purposes of representation in the House of Representatives, a slave would be counted as three fifths of a person. And even though that was a a narrow definition for a specific purpose, the impact of that, you know, the the inhumanity of that is, is really quite shocking. In fact, if there
2: is a takeaway for young students from this book, about the fragility of the document. Much of it is in the fact that so huge a portion of what brought our country into being was the result of compromises and unifying very different political philosophies. Not easy to explain to young students, but I I think the book does it well. On the eve of the 2020 election, as we are now, do you see young people before voting age more involved and more interested in issues of government and equality the environment than before.
1: Absolutely. And uh, one thing that I get asked about quite a bit, and not just by young people, also by by adults, but is about the the 22nd amendment, the two terms, the limitation to two terms for a president. Uh, That's an issue that people are are interested in now and uh, want to make sure they have a constitutional grounding and understand what the constitution says about that. Um, But there are other issues certainly as well. Um, you know, the Electoral College is more of a, um, some people want to abolish it, some people don't, and so it's, it's become more of an issue, I think, more of a political issue and less of just a a um, kind of that, that dry document we all claim to have read and, and have it all. And presidential succession, uh, some of those uh, issues, what happens if the president um, becomes unable? We have two um, older candidates than than typically we do. And um, what happens if the president becomes unable to do his job or, you know, there are all sorts of strange situations. James Madison was almost captured by the British in the War of 1812. What happens if the commander in chief is, in fact, a prisoner of an enemy nation? Do you still let him uh, give orders to the army? You know, what if he says, lay down all your arms? Uh, What if he says, do the hokey pokey? Uh, You know. Um, and the Constitution you know eventually makes clear that at that point um, you know that, that person cannot do. so you know lots of issues involved with that as well. Katie,
2: in the end, were there any discoveries for you writing this
1: book? I'm, I I knew the material fairly well, so I didn't suddenly discover an amendment I hadn't known or you know something like that. I, I knew I, I guess I hadn't really thought about the fact that the twenty seventh amendment is, one of the, uh, the the most recent one. We have 27 amendments, so it was passed and it was ratified in 1992. Um, it was actually one of the amendments that James Madison proposed as the um, 12 original amendments, 10 of which became the Bill of Rights, uh, the first 10 amendments in the Constitution, one of which would no longer make any sense. But the, the, the last one, um, I, I knew it'd become the, the 27th amendment, but I never really thought about what a really long time that is uh, for something to be laying around. And um, uh, it, that actually became an issue when uh, a student uh, got a C on his paper and wanted to prove to his teacher that uh, that amendment would still be viable, which he had claimed. And so he got it ratified as part of the constitution and his teacher went back and changed his grade to an A. Um, so uh, I, I knew that, but hadn't really thought about the implications of that uh, before that. And um, thought that was kind of fun.
2: Some of those surprises are fun. Some of those which you describe as trivia really are added details that just enrich our picture of the people who framed this document, which for all purposes is very much a living, breathing thing.
1: Oh, absolutely. And even things like, you know, sometimes we, we don't realize what a haphazard way things can come together. You know in 1841 john tyler the vice president for william henry harrison uh became president after harrison died a month into office in uh, the shortest tenure any president has had and um, nobody really knew for sure at the time if tyler would be the acting president so he would do the job but not really be the guy or if he was actually the president it wasn't clear and tyler basically walked into the office and, you know, put his boots up on the desk, metaphorically speaking, uh, and said, it me. And the cabinet said, well, we'll let you do the job, but you have to understand we're kind of in charge and, you know, you, you just kind of keep going. And Tyler said, no, it me, I'm the president. Uh, and we call that the Tyler precedent, uh, that the vice president becomes the actual president. And, and that was the case uh, by custom until the 25th amendment But it's only that way because John Tyler just decided to walk in and
2: take over. Katie Kennedy is the author of The Constitution Decoded. Her illustrated guide to the document that shapes our nation is out now. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Elevate is an annual public art festival presented by the City of Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. This year's event will take place in Atlanta's historic West End neighborhood, beginning this Sunday and continuing through Saturday, October 10th. Camille Russell Love is the executive director of the mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. She joins us now via Zoom with Leatrice Elsie, the executive director of Hammond's House Museum, and this year's curator for Elevate. Welcome back to City Lights.
3: Thank you all. Thank you.
2: Camille. Why was the annual Elevate Festival created?
4: We created the Elevate Public Art Festival as a way of engaging communities in the thought process of what would my community be like if art and culture were present in many different forms on a regular basis. And so this is an opportunity for us to go into a community infuse it with art and culture over, you know, a window of time. And then hopefully when we leave, the spirit of culture remains.
2: Mm. And what will be the theme of this year's Elevate?
4: Well, this year's Elevate theme is based on social justice. And the theme is equity, activism, and engagement. And we're going to explore that theme in a lot of different ways through art presentation, through music, through spoken word, through thoughtful conversations, and through installations that will be out in the community. Unfortunately, because of COVID-19, we are unable to be present in the community as we deliver this festival, and this is our first opportunity to do something virtually.
2: Ah, now, Leatrice, as we're living with the pandemic, how were you able to curate this festival and present all of these diverse offerings?
3: Well, you know, actually, Lois, because we're living through the pandemic, I think that it helped us diversify the offerings a little bit more. So there's a part of being virtual that is really nice, because we were able to like, you know, really enter into people's living rooms and their office areas and just their personal spaces to have these conversations with them. So when Camille called and said that they wanted to focus, that the um, city wanted to focus this Elevate on social justice, and I really started thinking about, you know, just kind of what does, you know, what are all the elements? What does that mean? And how do you engage artists in different ways? You know, so many times when we have festivals, You know, artists usually do what they do, which is often performing or, you know, presenting a visual work or something like that. But I think that during this um, Elevate, we really got an opportunity to speak with artists in a different way and hear artists' voices differently. So we have artists that are talking about, you know, just kind of how the pandemic has impacted their work. What are they being inspired by? What has this moment inspired in them? Um, And so it's real conversational in addition to... Um, you know, I gave some artists a task of, you know, we wanna look at freedom songs. What is what, do, what is a freedom song to you? And how they interpreted that. And so the concert part, we have a part that's called freedom songs, but it's everything from Bob Marley to, you know, we shall overcome. So um, I think people are gonna be very interested and excited about that. So it's been an opportunity to really dig deep into even the, the artistry, as well as just the thought process of what does freedom in this country mean to all of us. <laughs>
2: There have been several murals painted in Atlanta's historic West End as part of the festival. Would you tell us who's featured in these paintings?
3: Yes, we have one mural that features Reverend James Orange, and then we have another mural that features on the other side. And so this, that is on one side of the Goodwill building, that's on Ralph David Abernathy. And then when you go to the other side of the building, We see women who have been part of movements, part of, you know, freedom. We even have Pearl Clegg on the side of the building. Yay. Those are very exciting. Um, And then we've got a mural from Facebook that is encouraging people to vote, you know, because that's another big theme. You know, people, um, you know, really exercising their right to vote. So we are pushing that a lot during this festival. And then there's another um, mural that is actually being installed this week that is really looking at first responders. And Camille, you want to talk a little bit more about that one?
4: Well, we had a offer from 10 consulates in Atlanta that they wanted to pay homage to the first responders, doctors, nurses, firemen, policemen. And because a lot of them may be immigrants, They wanted to say to them, thank you. And so they have commissioned and they have offered to be part of the Elevate Festival. Uh, They've commissioned an artist to create a mural to pay homage to them.
2: Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, this is such a coming together of communities for the Elevate event. I'm thinking about some festivals in years past, that were not in areas as rich in art and culture as West End. How is it different curating this festival in a neighborhood that is already rich in art and culture versus some of the elevates of years past where residents were new to some of the artists and their work?
4: The Elevate Festival originated in downtown Atlanta, and we moved it from underground to South Broad Street to fairly popular. The South Broad Street area was one of our most challenging because it was an area of of like a new neighborhood community. But we left a lot there. And as a result of Elevate, we now see that downtown area being developed. So we feel like Elevate had an impact there. When we first moved out into neighborhood communities, we moved to the SWAT, the Southwest Atlanta, and we got a good response there because that is a community that recognizes and respects its history and its culture, and that was a good thing. The next year we moved to a community, Pittsburgh, where it was just the opposite. It is a community that is on the lower, on the economic scale, on the education scale. There was really no culture available that we could see. It's a community that's undergoing gentrification. And so we push forward with Elevate and we've left something there. And we hope that that community has benefited from it. To go from that to a community like West End was really exciting for us because, as you said, there is a rich history in the West End of not just culture, but of education, of politics and economic development. But it too now is undergoing some gentrification. And what we wanted to do was to remind the residents of West End of what a jewel the West End is, and educate the new residents of West End as to what kind of a community they are becoming part of so that they can be respectful of that community and they can become part of it in an inclusive way and not come in and, you know, try to change things. So each community is a a challenge, to be honest with you, in different ways.
2: But indeed, uh, the contrast from Pittsburgh last year to West End this year is great, and it's very impressive that the art doesn't end with the festival, that you have added something permanent to each community with Elevate. I'm curious about honoring the particular people this year who are featured in the murals Whose idea was that?
4: Well, when we go into a community, we basically ask the community what is important to them. This is why Leatrice, as the curator, was so important because she curates a a, a facility. She works at a facility there in that community, so she knows that community well. But what we did in conversation with the community, we asked them who are The people that you want this community to remember, and that is how the women's mural, the unsung heroines mural, came to be. Is that the artist worked with a historian, and they, you know, chose significant people who have made an impact in that community, from a young activist to a um, the first, you know, major real estate person in the community, Lottie Watkins, to Pearl clay who has used the West End as the space for her um, novels. And so the historian and the artist work together. The James Orange mural was basically recommended to us by Georgia stand uh, which is very active in that community and is basically handling the voter registration part of the Elevate Festival that kicks off on this Sunday, and they wanted us to do, um, you know, to pay homage to Reverend uh, James Orange, who was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s foot soldiers. Yes.
2: Is there information about those pictured in the murals next to the paintings or within the murals?
4: So what I learned when I went by the painting the other day is that there will be QR QR codes that you can come up and, you know, using your smartphone, you can gather information about the women who are in the mural. We'll also have information that will be accessible through our website. If you go to the mural image, then you should, you'll be able to find out who the women are who are pictured there.
2: Oh, that's great. Now, we've heard about those pictured in the murals. What can you tell us about the artists and and how they were selected to be a part of this project?
4: Well, that was Leatrice's job, so I'm going to let her tell you about that. Leatrice? So the
3: RFP went out from the city, um, you know, just basically announcing that these murals, um, you know, basically just saying that these are the the concepts that we're looking for. And then artists submitted what their concepts would be if they were chosen to do the mural. So we had a small group that came together to make a choice about which murals that it would be. We got the sign off from Camille and the sign off from the, the city, from the mayor. And so the artists were able to move forward with their work. And I have to tell you um, that I think that the choices were really good because they are stunning murals. Ashley Dobson was the muralist for um, the Unsung Heroines. And not only did Ashley go out and you know, create this mural, but Ashley has had about 40 young girls. And when I say young, I'm talking like 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds that have helped her after she finished you know, doing what she the part that she had to do. But these young girls have helped her to fill it in. And like on the bottom of that mural, you'll see um, protest, And so they've been filling in the protesters. And it's like, it's just been really beautiful to watch these older women and the younger girls working together on this particular mural. And they're also teaching the girls about who these women are. So I had like a 10-year-old explaining to me who Lottie Watkins was. No. <laughs> so it was actually very cool, you know. Oh, it's and splendid. then yeah, and then the James Orange Mural had like a ex- very experienced muralist working on it, but a illustrator who had never done a mural before. And so his illustration when you if you when you ride by it, it is the thing that leaps off the wall at you. So he deal and he's a a illustrator that deals in um, like marker and so they made the illustration look like a marker and was you know was used to do it and so again the colors are rich and deep and and it says hey leader which is something that um, Reverend Orange said all the time to people he said leaders answered the call. And so, again, I think that Elevate is leaving some really striking pieces there in terms of murals. And something that we haven't talked about, though, is um, Carrie Mae Weems's project, which is being installed as well. Carrie Mae Weems has done really a public service announcement for, for the entire country about COVID-19. And it's, uh, you know, encouraging people to stay six feet away Wash your hands, giving statistics about who is being impacted and the importance of people, just keeping your distance and staying safe and keeping communities safe. Mm-hmm. And so it was ideal for the West End community, because when we look at statistics and we look at who people are who are being most impacted by COVID-19, it really is the people that you know represent that community. And so we'll be installing a number of the portions of, from that campaign in the West End. They will be on MARTA buses. They're at the airport. And so we really are getting that word out, but through the artwork of Carrie Mae Weems.
2: Oh, and I mean, she's
3: internationally renowned. Absolutely. And we have her in the West End. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: Literous. Your arts organization, the Hammond's House Museum, is a major attraction of the West End. What can you tell us about the new exhibition at Hammond's House that will open as part of the festival?
3: Well, we will be opening Elements of a Revolution, but guess what, Lois? Like the rest of the festival, it will be opened virtually.
2: Of course
3: yes and so we'll be um we'll be streaming it that evening where the people will be able to see the work or that afternoon where people can see the work and they'll um, be in conversation with the curators so kevin sip is our local curator for that but then we have two curators out of chicago that um are participating as well and the beautiful thing about this work i mean there's about oh my god there's probably about 70 pieces Um, and there are 70 pieces that have been created by artists all over the country. Um, I think we have about five Atlanta artists that are involved in it, but these artists are from all over the country. Once again, the beautiful thing about doing something virtually is that we really have this collaborative effort to help tell a story. So the conversation will be between Kevin and these other curators, and then the people can go to the Hammond's House Museum website to be able to really digest and, and jump in and dig into the work. And can you tell us which
2: revolution is depicted in the exhibition?
3: Actually, the works that are depicted in this exhibition have all been inspired by our current level of unrest that's been going on in the country since March and, you know, we we'll really March and beyond. And so that is what is being, you know, that's kind of what they use as their inspiration and what's been being focused on.
2: Mm. Elements of a reckoning as well.
3: Mm, That's right.
2: This year has been exponentially more difficult for communities of color, whether due to the pandemic, police brutality, or food insecurity. How can festivals such as Elevate help restore hope to these communities?
3: Well, I think that what we do is, like I said a few minutes ago, it's how we tell the story. And sometimes when you tell the story and you're able to look at something not isolated or not in a vacuum, but you've able, you're able to look at it in a very broad view, that it provides an opportunity for hope because you really do get an opportunity to see the light You know, in this festival, we have the voices of everyone from Andrew Young, who is talking about lessons from the civil rights movement that people that are, you know, have been engaged in this movement can carry with them. And so it's not a conversation that's just about like, well, this is what we used to do, but it really is being very forward thinking. And at the end of the day, we're talking about systems, you know, and that no matter what changes, unless the systems change, nothing changes. And so we're having that conversation. We have Toshi Reagan, who is the daughter of Bernice Johnson Reagan, who, as you know, wrote so many of the songs during the civil rights movement. And so we have Toshi talking and in conversation, talking about the importance of those songs um, as as movement songs. But who are the artists now and what are the songs that they're creating and what are they thinking about? Les Nubian, the sister duo, the French sister duo from um, Paris and Cameroon, just giving us a snapshot of what's happening, not only in the United States, but what did this spark in other countries, right? And so how did what happened in this um, country with protests, how did that strike the protest that happened in Paris? And why were they not protesting in Cameroon? You know, What was that conversation about? And so we're having that conversation, but at the end of the day, we're talking about love and hope, right? So I think that when you paint this, Very, this palette that we're painting with this broad stroke, you know, that people will be able to see hope. They will be able to see what their role is in ensuring change. And it's all done through the voice and the lens of artists. And that's what's exciting.
4: Yeah, you know, Lois, I believe that artists are our truth tellers. And the fact that we can have this conversation across multiple genres with artists leading the way is what is so important and what will be so impactful about this festival and the fact that it will be evergreen. You know, the fact that we're recording this festival will allow us to keep parts of it or all of it so that we can refer back to it or people can come back and take a second look or a second listen at what we've created for this festival and make sure that they capture all of the lessons that we'll be teaching. Let me just make one last comment. During the months of the pandemic, we have engaged artists across multiple genres to document what has occurred with them during the pandemic. And we are going to be publishing a magazine called Pandemic 2020, and it will document what we commissioned artists to do. It was photography and visual arts and choreography and music and spoken word and that magazine is going to be available at some locations where creative loafing drops off but will also be available at some of the locations within the west end where we're having this festival
2: oh and if it's where creative loafing is does that mean it's free it's free yes Camille Russell Love is the executive director of the City of Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. Leatrice Elsie is the executive director of Hammonds House Museum and curator of this year's Elevate: Equity, Activism, and Engagement. The virtual festival begins this Sunday and runs through October 10th. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. After a short break, we'll hear how artists are defacing their own murals. Stay with us on 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta.
1: The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R I C H M O N dot edu. It is a cruel act
2: of vandalism when a work of art has been defaced, but artists defacing their own work is another story. A COVID-19 prevention campaign, Big Facts Small Acts, enlisted Atlanta artists for their grassroots effort targeted at black and brown communities. Fabian Williams, W., Matt Letters, and Melissa Mitchell are among the artists who added masks to their own paintings of heroes, including Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Colin Kaepernick, Bob Marley, and others. Founder Sherry Scott explains here how Big Fact Small Acts was started.
0: It really began with a group of Black women artists um, here in Atlanta. I came up with the idea. I live in Southwest Atlanta in a neighborhood called Sylvan Hills. And I went to my local Kroger and it was very obvious to me while shopping, and this is mid to early March, that the message about COVID prevention and awareness wasn't really hitting our community. And I could tell because no one was wearing masks, no one was paying attention to the social distancing stickers on the floor, and there was no enforcement. And then the cashier who was checking me out burst into tears because she was just overwhelmed by being in this situation. And so I left that trip determined to do something about making sure that the message about wearing a mask and washing your hands and social distancing was getting out to the communities most impacted by COVID. So I gathered a bunch of girlfriends, we brainstormed, and we came up with a multimedia campaign, which was Big Facts Small Acts. Hmm.
2: Who decided it would be effective for mural artists to put masks on their original creations?
0: Well, the, the amazing thing about Big Facts Small Acts is it truly has been a grassroots community effort. And one of, you know, we talk a lot about allyships. One of the allies in this campaign is a local ad agency called chemistry and chemistry because I'm friends with some of the guys who run it. When they saw what we were doing, they came up with ideas and that was one of the ideas they came up with. They knew that I was good friends with Fabian Williams and, you know, good friends with W as well, who are two of Atlanta's most iconic mural artists. And so the idea was let's ask them to cover up these murals so that there is a daily reminder in the communities being impacted that this is something that is real, that has a truly negative impact on our community, but is preventable if we just kind of cover our community and take care of each other.
2: What resources and information are offered on the social media pages of Big Facts Small Acts?
0: Absolutely. So on Instagram, which is Big Facts Small Acts ATL, In addition to just stats, up-to-date stats on how COVID is impacting the Black and Brown communities, there's also tips on staying safe while protesting because the truth of the matter is we know people are out in the streets raising their voices and and while 100% we want that, we want people to be safe because COVID is still here. So there's tips on how to protest safely. There's also tips on voting safely And then also on our website, there's resources. So there's local, national, um, state resources for people impacted either from health-wise, financially vetted information as well, (laughs) which is key in these times. And there's also information on what to do if you are sick or you think you might be sick. And and there's Spanish language resources. The point of the matter is we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. The, The idea was to take the existing information that was out there and put it into a format and platforms that we knew our target audience would be able to engage with.
2: Sherry, for those who may not be aware, would you talk about why the coronavirus is affecting black and brown communities at a disproportionate rate to that of white communities?
0: Absolutely. And, and the short answer is, you know, racism it's, it's systematic. We have higher rates of the underlying health conditions that make people particularly vulnerable to COVID. So heart disease, lung disease, high blood pressure, diabetes. And then economically, black and brown people are more likely to work those essential frontline jobs. So the exposure level is higher. And then also health insurance. So if I feel sick, I'm more likely to not seek out medical help. I'm also more likely to continue to go to work because I cannot afford to. And then you know, some of it is the beautiful things about our culture. You know, we are multi-generational oftentimes. We're, you know, cultures that very much enjoy big family gatherings, you know, all these things that are very beautiful about who we are are also in some ways a contributing factor.
2: On the big fact, small acts website, there is a place to donate. What do these donations fund?
0: Absolutely. So right now. We are working on a partnership with Masks for the People, which is a group out of uh, the Bay Area that has put together a scalable system for distributing masks. And, you know, we were kind of doing it on our own grassroots, but the truth of the matter is that's not, you know, community organizing in that way is not our strength. So we're hoping to raise 10 grand for Masks for the People, and that 10 grand will allow them to distribute 5,000 mask kits here in Atlanta. So the masks include masks and sanitizer. So that's the big push for now. And then two, we would love to continue to do more murals and more kind of outdoor experiential activations to keep people engaged. And so materials for that. But primarily, what we're raising money for is is masks. So that come November, when we start returning to sports, I just want people to have the option of wearing a mask if they want to.
2: Sherry Scott, founder of Big Facts Small Acts. You can find more information about the murals and their initiatives at bigfactsmallacts.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about in the theater and on the screen, the new season of Atlanta's Synchronicity Theater. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. I am working toward another round number. You may help me get there if you follow me at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more,